sure here. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be releasing some history podcasts to help develop your learning. The series will cover crime and punishment. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to your favourite teacher. Today, we'll be taking an overview look at the influence of the church from around 1000 to 1500 AD. As alongside the king and changing ideas and attitudes at the time, the church had significant influence over crime and punishment at this time. When we say the church, what we really mean is the institution of the church, the people who worked for the church, who were called the clergy, and the ideas and beliefs that the church held. The first important fact to remember is that the church was very powerful during this period. It was an important institution whose ideas and influences could be seen in nearly every aspect of Norman and medieval life. And so by default, its influence and power can be seen when we look at crime and punishment in this era. Let's first take a look at the ways in which the church held power. If you can close your eyes and imagine transporting yourself back to this time on entering any medieval village, the church was likely to be the biggest and most imposing building there and in many cases could be seen for miles around, with its spires pointing upwards to heaven as a reminder that if you did as the church said, that was to follow God's will, then you would end up being rewarded in heaven. So in this way, the church held power over the people, as by following its teachings, people that had often have a very tough life on earth would be given hope of a much better, more comfortable life in heaven. In addition to offering hope, the church was also influential as it offered help to the local community. For example, it gave charity and shelter to the poor and needy, and could offer medicine to the sick. Even more importantly, people were reliant on the church to explain the teachings of the Bible, as in most communities, it was only members of the clergy who could read and write. Therefore, attending church was a must, as most people couldn't decipher the teachings of the Bible themselves. Once in church, you would be confronted with drawings and paintings demonstrating the paradise of heaven and, in contrast, the horrifying notion of hell, further compelling people to follow what the church said was God's will. Churches were often very opulent buildings in comparison to the homes of many people. After all, the church was very rich, with everyone having to pay one-tenth of their earnings in tax to it. In fact, it was such a rich institution that it owned one-fifth of the wealth in England at this time. At this time in England, most people followed the Christian faith. And so you can start to see how the church held so much influence over the everyday lives of the great mass of the population. But its power also impacted on those from other faiths. For example, in the late 13th century, Jews who refused to convert to Christianity were banished from the country. Now knowing all of this, it's not too much of a stretch to understand why the church also had power in the process of deciding guilt or innocence when people were accused of committing a crime, and in some cases, deciding the form of punishment that the guilty should receive. In terms of determining guilt or innocence, we see that the power and influence of the church actually weakens as we move our way through the period. In the Anglo-Saxon era, the influence of the church was strong with the church often being tasked with establishing guilt or innocence through the use of trial by ordeal, with the trials being carried out by the clergy and the outcome being based on God sending a sign or signal that the person taking part was either guilty of a crime or not. One example of this was trial by hot water, 
where the accused would have their hands scalded by hot water and then wrapped in a bandage. If the burn healed, then the person was considered innocent, and if it didn't, then they were considered guilty. We can also see the influence and power of the church when we look at the fact that if a priest was accused of a crime, they could be given a different type of trial by ordeal. This came in the form of trial by consecrated bread. The accused priest had to eat a piece of consecrated bread. That's holy bread that people believed was the body of Christ. If he choked, then he was guilty, but if he could eat it without choking, then he was innocent. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd much rather chance this trial than any other type of trial by ordeal. And it was no coincidence that the people who were part of this important institution faced much easier types of trials. However, as we move into the medieval period, we can see that the influence of the church in deciding guilt or innocence is starting to decrease. This was as a result of the Pope in 1215 ordering priests to stop organising and administrating trial by ordeal. From this point onwards, there was no one else to do it, as in the medieval mindset, it had to be carried out by the clergy. Therefore, there was a need to find a different way of deciding guilt. And it's at this point that we see the introduction of trial by jury, something that we still use today. The ending of trial by ordeal didn't mean a complete end to the influence of the church on crime and punishment. And although its power decreased a little, it still managed to maintain a significant influence throughout the period 1000 to 1500 AD, despite some monarchs trying to put an end to this in an attempt to increase their own hold on the criminal justice system. In Norman England, the church had seen strong influence over issues to do with crime and punishment. William I was in favour of church courts dealing with moral crimes. These were crimes that didn't physically hurt anyone, but that went against society's accepted rules. In church courts, there was an overriding principle that the guilty should be given the chance to redeem or better themselves. Therefore, punishments such as branding or maiming were seen as better than execution, as they offered justice to the victim, gave the public a visible symbol that someone had committed a criminal act, but also provided the criminal with an opportunity to seek salvation and reform their behaviour, becoming a person that followed God's will. By the late 12th century, monarchs wanted to reduce the power of the church. In particular, Henry II set out to limit the church's power, believing that while there were still church courts, his power as the country's monarch was undermined. Henry wanted to reach a clear agreement with the church about the power of the church and king in affairs to do with crime and punishment, and met with bishops at the Council of Clarendon to try and achieve this. However, Henry was unsuccessful in ending the church's power over trying members of the clergy, who had been accused of crimes. He wanted to end the benefit of the clergy, a system where clergymen accused of crimes were put in trial in church courts, which were outside the jurisdiction of the king. Church courts had more lenient punishments than normal courts. For example, rather than being maimed, a clergyman could simply be ordered to go on a pilgrimage, travelling to somewhere of religious significance. We can already start to see why this was something that Henry II wanted to stop. But added to this was the fact that in order to prove you were a member of the clergy, all you had to do was to recite a passage from the Bible, Psalm 51. Therefore, criminals often learnt this passage up, as if caught, they could recite it and be tried in the church court, receiving a much more lenient punishment. And Psalm 51 became known as a neck verse, as it could literally save your neck from hanging. Another way in which the church held influence over crime and punishment in this period was that it could offer sanctuary or safety to those accused of crimes. 
If people reached the safety of a particular church, then sanctuary could be claimed. The clergy would report the crime as normal, but if they saw fit, they could also give the person the opportunity to leave the country within 40 days and face no trial or punishment at all. This practice continued right up into 1536, when it was stopped under the reign of Henry VIII. So, we can see that in the period 1000 to 1500 AD, the church's influence infiltrated most parts of everyday life, including crime and punishment. Although as we move through the period, we see this power decrease in some way. And despite attempts of the kings to reduce the church's power, it still remained a powerful player in the criminal justice process. I'm Miss Wainer, and we've been examining the influence of the church on crime and punishment in the period 1000 to 1500 AD. I hope you're finding the Crime and Punishment podcasts useful. I'm Miss Shaw with your favourite teacher. Thanks for listening.